You are listening to the Lotus and the Rose podcast, featuring highlights of 10 years of interfaith conversations between Tibetan Buddhist Lama Somo and mystical Christian Matthew Fox. They've both taken less-traveled spiritual paths, giving them each a fresh perspective informed by their own routes and the nature and challenges of today's world. Today's episode centers around meditation. For more information on these two unique teachers, please check out the show notes of this episode, but here's a brief summary to get you started. Lama Soma was born into an American Jewish household, retaining those roots as her spiritual search eventually led to her immersion in Tibetan Buddhism and her 2005 ordination as a Tibetan Buddhist Lama. She has taught hundreds of students in the West and in Asia, is the author of the award-winning book Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling, and has dedicated herself to bringing the proven methods of Tibetan Buddhism to the modern world through the offerings of the Namshak Foundation. Matthew Fox was a member of the Dominican Order for 34 years and continues as an internationally recognized voice and catalyst for mystical Christianity. He is a reinventor of worship, an author, an activist, and the force behind the Fox Institute of Spirituality and the Order of the Sacred Earth. The late historian and theologian Thomas Berry wrote that Matthew Fox might well be the most creative, the most comprehensive, surely the most challenging religious spiritual teacher in America. I am a card-carrying Westerner, and we Westerners seem to be pretty terrible at compassion for ourselves or even liking ourselves. And I, too, find it challenging sometimes to give myself compassion. Luckily, I have practices to help with that. And because of the visualization and breath and felt sense and, you know, sound and all these different things we use to help set it in, and the repetition creating a habit of mind and setting the pathways in, all of that has helped me so that I am definitely more compassionate with myself, more happy with myself, content with myself, I think is a better way to say it, and liking myself better. A mutual friend who was Buddhist was also friends with my dad. You know, at one point the friend he was angry about something. And so then my dad said, well, that's not very Buddhist. And she said, well, I'm a Buddhist, not a Buddha. There are plenty of times when, actually, pretty much all the time, I'm not a Buddha, because there's no time that I am a Buddha. I'm just somebody who is trying their best to move in that direction. Meanwhile, becoming a better, happier person along the way, and that much I've already seen. I hope that eventually I do become totally awake and totally enlightened. But meanwhile, these methods are helping me to be better, happier today.
For me, prayer at its basis, it's not about talking. Sometimes it's talking. It's also about silence, what we call meditation or contemplation. So that was happening deep within our psyche, within our soul, within our consciousness. And some occasions that depth is joy and awe and wonder. It's what the mystics call the via positiva. Sometimes that depth inside of us is a calling of silence and stillness. Uh, that's the via negativa, where you cease is mindlessness. You cease entertaining images. You empty yourself of images. And of course, suffering too is another form of the via negativa. And suffering, of course, can be very, very deep. It's a radical response to life, how we, how we respond to suffering. So addictions creep right into the via negativa there to fill the void, whereas authentic meditative practices from the East or the West are about being with the emptiness, being in the silence, being with the void. I think there are a lot of myths that people tell themselves as they're considering uh, just daily meditation practice, and they may not even be considering following a whole spiritual path. At the beginning, that's not really necessary. It's good to just sort of take it a step at a time. But I think people scare themselves with the idea even of spending a few minutes a day paying attention to their breathing. We're breathing all the time. We already got that down. We do a lot of sitting, so there you go. It's just a question of paying attention to this breathing that's always happening. So if a person is working to become a better, happier person, a more compassionate person, and really putting it into practice whenever they can, and not afraid to see when they're off track and try to make that better, that's one thing I would look for. Another one is, I don't have the time to pay attention to my breathing for a few minutes a day, which is a myth. You know, then I just ask people, so how much TV do you watch in a day? Could you spare a few minutes from that to watching this? Another one is, I can't make my mind, and my brain won't stop. I'm a terrible meditator. So it's a little bit like my son with the piano lessons. He was a terrible piano player before he knew how. He's a really good example because he's become a professional musician. <laughs> so I just have to point out, you know, he started without knowing how to play the piano. And everybody who starts out meditating doesn't know how to meditate. So if you're starting out meditating and you don't know how to meditate, you're right where you should be. Our brains will wander. The brain is a thinking machine. That's what it's designed for. And actually, that's okay. The thoughts can come up and then go, and come up and go. But if we're, you know, following after it and getting pulled off into some sort of whole story and movie or whatever, internal conversation, then we're not meditating anymore. So that session was over. So then we remember, oh yeah, I was meditating. Then we come back, and there's this fresh moment of, ah, that's probably about the best moment in your meditation. So you want to have a lot of those. Instead of having a stagnant pond for many minutes, you can have water that bounces over mountain rocks. And I'd like to tell you that was my metaphor, but it was Rinpoche's. The water that bounces over the rocks is very fresh. So those many little sessions are actually good. And the more times you catch yourself following after thoughts when you're doing practice, the more that's practice for being mindful, aware, in your regular, you know, off-the-cushion life. 
Another feature of Tibetan Buddhist practice is that through the brilliant use of archetype, I can tune into various principles of reality, which can be useful on different occasions. And also if I feel like I'm kind of deficient in this or that one, there's a deity practice for that. To have that array of practices, a full palette uh, to use, that's wonderful. And it's not in Judaism, it's not in Christianity. Um, it really is a full array in uh, Tibetan Buddhist tradition. What Tibetan Buddhism is trying to do is take these methods that meet us where we're at right now. Uh -huh. And right now, we pay attention to what's coming into our senses. Mm -hmm. You know, we're fascinated by them and then we go out toward them and we make this whole movie. Mm. So they have scripted a very precisely created movie mm. <laughs> to work with the senses and mm -hmm. create an experience that uh, sort of ushers us into emptiness there and then Beyond our senses. job is at the end to sit in the emptiness and there we are. Yeah, well there is a parallel very much in Tibetan Buddhism. One of the stages of the path is uh, yidam practice or deity practice and the purpose of it is to purify the senses mm. and so we're meditating on the deity understanding being very clear that this is not a substantial thing you know, mm -hmm. the deity, we don't believe they have organs and, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that uh -huh. you could actually touch them and, mm -hmm. you know, reach solid flesh. This is insubstantial because we understand the essential empty nature of the being and yet it appears. Mm -hmm. Well, that's actually true of everything around. Mm -hmm. But we have this very opaque kind of lens that we've created that makes reality look like this but our surroundings in this practice are transformed into the pure land of the deity and the palace of the deity. So our home becomes the palace, so it's purified in that way. Our body becomes the insubstantial light body of the deity. And uh, instead of our friends and co-workers, now that's all purified and it's the entourage of the deity. That's done visually in the way I'm describing, but then there's the mantra, archetypal sound that is pure in itself and it uh, sort of invokes the pure presence of that particular archetypal facet of wisdom. Uh, and so it works on all these levels, and so you work with that to the point where then you are ushered into pure, unelaborate emptiness, just naked emptiness. How would you describe this emptiness? Well, if you could describe it, would it be emptiness? Uh, of course, we're having to fake it with words. <laughs> All we can do is sort of indicate in the direction. I think silence is probably the better way to describe it. Eckhart says, you know, we should quit flapping our gums about God and return to our, the inner wealth of silence. Mm -hmm. So I think once you've tasted emptiness, nothingness, and silence, there's not a lot to say about that. Now there's a lot more to say about other things because you've got your, your energy back. I think all creativity comes out of an encounter with a silence. And, and that when you think about what is an experience of awe, for example, it, it shuts you up. There's a great story of Job. You know, Job had all his troubles, and finally God it kind of reveals himself to Job. And God says, you know, were you there when I formed the world? Were you there when the lion was born and so forth? And then Job put his hand over his mouth. You know, he shut up. <laughs> you know, he learned some silence. But with hand over your mouth is a sense of awe. Yeah. I think all awe renders us silent. And therefore, all experiences of awe are this quick trip back to no sound, no word, to nothingness. Mm -hmm. 
that's where they're so valuable and we have to build our lives, our culture, our education, our spiritual lives on those profound experiences that take us beyond our left brain. It's the left brain that wants to talk. Mm -hmm. The right brain is happy to be silent or make music or, you know, try another language. I like to see art as humanity's capacity to increase awe in the universe. So everything we do that's beautiful brings more awe. And therefore, and more silence. Well, and purifies vision. Getting purifies back vision. Right, yes. so, which brings us back home. And purifies the visionary. That is, say, the artist yeah. gets purified in the work, right? Yeah, hopefully so. Hopefully so, yeah. yes, yeah. Uh, there's Not a trend always. these days. Uh, <laughs> One can resist. <laughs> but there's a corollary uh, to the Buddha. Early on, his students asked him to describe pure truth, what he saw, mm -hmm. and he fell silent. Aha. Uh -huh. That's uh -huh. a famous moment uh -huh. in Buddhism as well. Nevertheless, maybe we can sneak a peek at it by saying what it's not. <laughs> because one thing it's not is a vacuum, an mm. unknowing vacuum. There's uh, a cognizance about it, mm. an awareness. Mm -hmm. John the Cross calls it silent music. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's you know, It's paradoxical. You know? Well, actually, in music, between the notes, there's silence. There you go. You can't have music There's no without music silence. without it, yeah. It's allowing the between the notes into us. Whereas our culture, especially now, mm -hmm. is so busy with all notes and no silence. I talked with this Tibetan doctor about space being the fifth element. They have the four mm. elements plus space. Mm. And I said, so how does that work on a psychological level? And he said, if there's no space between thoughts, that is the definition of insanity. Wow. And haven't we been mm. coming closer and closer to that? Wow. Now that we count in nanoseconds, you know, between mm. thought events, mm -hmm. I think we're <laughs> approaching that. So honoring space, honoring emptiness. And of course, in terms of our own lives, finding room and space, creating solitude. Yeah. Right? Even if it means structuring time during the day or mm -hmm. a room in the house or a walk in the woods or whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. The Western culture at this time leaves us with very few practices to honor this intrinsic, this natural need we have for silence and honoring the nothingness and the emptiness. So I think this is one more place where Buddhist practices can really bring some balance back to Western, Western culture. And do you think sitting in emptiness is part of our returning to our origins and our source? That's yes. very positive dimension to we come from nothingness we have to return there periodically to refresh ourselves and to center ourselves and ground ourselves so you're and implying that we've left it or we carry it with us but we can ignore it <laughs> we're really good at ignoring i was intrigued by your describing your journey your inquiry into some methods that could help you to, you know, become basically a better, happier person, hmm. you know, and hmm. your inquiry into meaning hmm. and those kinds of things. And what specifically are the methods of training the mind within the traditions that you've inquired into that you mm -hmm. found most helpful? Hmm. Well, the training I had for nine years, I guess it was, nine or ten years as a Dominican, the things that most impressed me were... Um, Meditation. It was sitting in silence for an hour in the morning, and then you were taught various ways you could deal with that silence, you know. One practice I had that worked for me was to find just one, one short phrase, usually from the Bible, and just dwell with that. 
And then you move from dwelling with it to just being in a space mm -hmm. of silence. That's I'm, like what I was talking about, where it takes the conceptual mind with the hook of concepts. Yes, that's right. It, and you move from right discursive to mm -hmm. non-discursive, yeah. absolutely. I remember one line, I don't know what book in the Jewish Bible it's from. It's such a short phrase, but the phrase was, son, give me your heart. Mm. And that just really rolled with that probably for weeks, mm -hmm. if not months. Mm -hmm. That was in my novitiate year, which is, was a year of uh, a lot of meditation. And, and you know, in, in discipline, you got up at, I don't know, four in the morning. It was Winona, Minnesota, freezing cold with snow. And you were silent, too, until breakfast. So you meditate for an hour, and then you had mass for an hour. Then you had the chanting of the Psalms, wisdom literature. And that was very profound, too, because, again, just one line from one of the Psalms can be extremely rich. I had a problem with it, and I would tell my superiors that, you know, we race through it. It's like racing to get to the end of the psalm. I said, that's no way to meditate. Mm -hmm. And then when the spring came and you know, everything was flowering so beautiful, I would say, why don't we go outside and meditate with the trees? And they said, are you crazy? And I said, oh, well, maybe I am, but it sounded better than being in church, you know, racing through these things. I found out that useful. And then, of course, we had the Gorian chant. It's very beautiful, you know, very, it comes from the, from the synagogue, by the way, Gorian chant does. As a musical form, it's extremely powerful, reaching many of your chakras. And you know, the, the latest science on Gregorian chant is that, in fact, they had different chants for different diseases, mm. different seasons of the year. You know, if you were having a liver problem, you'd chant this. And, you know, so it's really very sophisticated, much more so than we were ever aware mm. or taught. <laughs> that different modes will heal different uh, psychological state. You're depressed, you're happy, you know. All I know is we were singing these chants, and uh, I wasn't a real good singer, but there were people in my class who were, and it was just marvelous hearing them sing. And we'd have processions singing these songs. And, mm -hmm. and then we had a rosary, which is, of course, a mantra. We would do what you'd actually call three rosaries a day. And again, that takes you into an altered state. Well, and you're using an archetype. Absolutely. that, archetypal visual, archetypal sound. Right. And it's also about Mary, so it's about the feminine, mm -hmm. the yin. And then there was nature. We'd go outdoors and we'd play sports and stuff. And I always loved sports. I always had mystical experiences playing sports, frankly. <laughs> I love sports. When my father was a football coach, maybe it had something to do with it. And then there was the intellectual side. And for me, that was very important. That's one reason that drew me into the Dominicans, to study. My questioning mind was not being famished mm -hmm. in the presence of this mystical mind that was developing, you know. And there was silence at meals. Sometimes someone would read from a book while everyone else was silent. And then there was physical work to do, you know, healthy manual work, mm -hmm. or working in the yard or something. And then just the community give and take, you know friendship of it and all that. So that kind of went on for nine years and it, it, with some slight variations. Mm -hmm. And we got a couple of master's degrees in the process and all that, working on philosophy and theology. Mm -hmm. All that just appealed to me very much, but I went into such a state that my confessor suggested that I become a full-time contemplative, a hermit, and live one summer with the hermit colony on Vancouver Island. And it was very powerful. I think I ran on that energy for about 25 years. And at the Hermitage, you talk to no one, except for a little bit. You could, I think, talk every other day for an hour or something. But it was just really being in nature, very simple. I literally lived with a candle and a Bible and a mattress on the floor. And I remember taking a bath in the river with a bar of soap. 
Were there specific practices you did uh, during that time? Uh, well, reading, reading the Bible and chanting. We would have a very simple daily Mass. But it was really on your own. So I was developing, I guess, some of the practices that were working for me, mm-hmm. like taking phrases from the Bible. It was not at all heavily directed. In fact, it was hardly directed at all. Mm-hmm. You have the mundro, or the preliminary practices, and they're called that not because they're considered very pedestrian. They're actually quite powerful. But it's a collection of five practices that, again, come at it from different angles that prepare us for whatever is next. So if we're going to do a ceremony, we always begin with preliminaries, which is these five practices. Or even when we're sitting alone in our meditation room, we begin with the preliminaries and then maybe go on to Dzogchen. That was the the most convincing thing for me as I explored first the spiritual smorgasbord and then eventually Tibetan Buddhism, is the practices themselves and their effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And when I first started studying with Rinpoche, I so much appreciated as a Jew doing this mm-hmm. that he said, I'm not giving you a religion. What I'm really giving you is a series of methods mm-hmm. that you can use for training your mind so mm-hmm. that you can reach enlightenment. Huh. As a psychotherapist, I could appreciate some of these methods. and we would sort of change gears and have different practices that would cultivate different aspects of the mind and different Mm -hmm. movements of the mind and so on. So one meditation might be calming and making peaceful the mind, which we've discussed Mm -hmm. before. And then another one might be a very penetrating insight into the nature of these things, trying to pierce the veil of illusion, as, as it's said, you know, sort of pierce through the movie screen <laughs> to what's really there. Mm-hmm. And then an, another one would be compassion meditation, where you use our natural tendency anyway to have dramas go on mm-hmm. and make dramas about the people around us, you know, in Tonglin, that meditation, for example. So you've got insight and then you've got bodhicitta, and bodhicitta means the mind of awakening. And I think of it as being more like the heartfelt sense that we're not separate. And we're cultivating Mm -hmm. that in various ways. And again, we can change gears and do that through not just compassion, but sympathetic joy, as you were looking for. There are four boundless qualities or immeasurables, as they're sometimes translated. A feeling of love, a simple feeling of love and wanting people to be happy and not suffer. And then there's compassion, sympathetic joy. Really, a very important one is equanimity, that we don't just feel like sort of an indifference that's disguised as equanimity. That's a near enemy of equanimity. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, I feel the same about everybody, you know, mm-hmm. equally numb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but rather, we start very close in with people we really care about and practice these feelings and then step Stand them out, it. as okay. we did with Dong Lin. But mm-hmm. there are these other ways of also giving rise to bodhicitta. This speaks to the Tibetan experience in prison. So many Tibetans were tortured and they saw people Mm. killed and there was a lot of trauma. At one point, some Western experts in trauma, psychotherapists, came to the border where Tibetans were escaping. And they thought, well, you know, it's a cinch, they're going to need trauma work. The, the amazing thing was, almost no one needed any trauma work. Wow. So the Dalai Lama came up with the same answer that my teacher, my Lama, came up with. And they hadn't talked to each other. <laughs> Being Tibetans, they came from the same experience. And my Lama had been in prison. Uh-huh. And he watched the Chinese who were in prison, because sometimes they did a crime or something and they came into prison. Their experience was very different from the Tibetans, even in the same place. 
whereas the Chinese uh, tended to be quite traumatized by it, mm -hmm. and many of them killed themselves. Mm -hmm. The Tibetans, because they had this understanding of being, you know, an appearance coming out of this great emptiness that we've been speaking of, and they didn't have any understanding of original sin, and they did have a belief in karma, they thought, well, in some other lifetime, you know, who knows how many thousands of years ago, I must have done something, hmm. you know, terrible to somebody, and I'm simply living out the you should reap what you sow, that, that's karma, basically. Mm -hmm. So I'm reaping that now, and if I live through this and just you know let it spend itself, because eventually it will, then some other karma will arise and I'll be finished with this. And that's, that's what happened, for example, in Rinpoche's case. Mm. He was then let go. With the longtime meditators, they put out levels of gamma waves that had never ever been recorded before. No one had ever seen levels, anything approaching these levels. Not only when they were meditating, which was when they were really off the charts, but they were still off the charts in between sessions. And the brain was giving out more coordinated readings between the left and right hemispheres. Talk about taming the lizard. <laughs> the way one scientist put it was, just as weightlifting and aerobics can sculpt the body, these meditative practices can sculpt the brain and they had actually measured that. People who have practiced these Vajrayana practices have been known to transform their physical bodies into light and leave behind nothing but hair, nails, and the clothes that they were wearing. There's just this heap left on the ground. And that's happened not in long ago times only, but also even in more recent times. And this is a gift in our time that we didn't have before. I get excited about the potential for our schools, for raising children, and for our species. If we, again, as I, I said before, if we can teach meditation, if we can retain some control over our consciousness that these ancient peoples and traditions offer us and had, and still have, as you say, there lies a lot of hope for our species. I think that's the exciting news, what you're talking about, that these methodologies, these practices, can actually be scientifically verified as well as in terms of story. And therefore, we ought to be able to make them available even in a culture that makes a big deal about separation of church and state, but is thoroughly interested in what science approves of. So I think that making this headway in terms of, of the kind of experiments you're talking about, about experimenting with the minds of, of meditators, has tremendous potential. You might say politically as well as practically. It is a political question. How do you get meditation in its various forms into education and into government? Instead of having, for example, a chaplain in the House of Representatives who stands up and says some pious prayer to God knows who, what God in the sky they're praying to, you know, to stand up in the House of Representatives and have them do a meditation that gets everyone there into Gama State and then start passing laws. I mean, now that's interesting. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. So, you know, that's, I think, within the realm of political imagination. Well, and imagine if they had to do daily meditation. You know, well, every time they convened, spend yeah. the first half hour doing that. Right. Instead of these prayer breakfasts, you know, have a <laughs> meditation breakfast. So, so you know, we, it's kind of like they've got a form, but it's perverse right now. But if you could bring something in there with good scientific substance behind it, you see, that's, that's what will rattle the cage in, in this culture.
And you see, you know, remember Jung said this, Ignatius of Loyola had no via negativa. Now, what he's really saying is that the entire modern era had no via negativa. What is the via negativa? It is the experience of the divine darkness, the divinity of the dark. It literally means, you know, the negative way. But it's not just about suffering, it's about darkness. So you go into the darkness to find connections. For example, a sweat lodge. There's a communion experience in there. In fact, it's a return to the womb. The womb is dark. So we begin in the dark. We were luminous, but we were in the dark. And not just luminous, but luminous. That's what the teaching of the cause of Christ is about, that we all radiate the luminosity of the divine. You radiate beauty and luminosity and luminosity in the dark as well as in the light. Actually, there is a tradition in Tibet of the dark retreat, and people usually only can do it for about a week. It's very intensive. They build a special dark retreat hut, and they go in there, and there is absolutely no light, none whatsoever. What people find is that in the absence of images to be able to see, there's no reference, and of course it is quiet, then they're thrown back on their own minds, and it becomes very clear that their minds are producing everything. It's a very short path to high levels of enlightenment. And it's also really scary because you encounter your own demons, your own deities. It's like going into the bardo without dying. That's really interesting. And you're in there alone, are you? Yeah. Yeah, so there's no talking either. None right. whatsoever. Right. You're completely Science. silent. No other body either. No other, no other body unless a mouse gets in. <laughs> In order to peel away the layers of this onion <laughs> and get to our very true essential nature, there are some, you know, simple imagery things that we can do. When I first was working with my Lama and I was working on calm abiding meditation and insight meditation and I would say, well, you know, what do you suggest I do when my mind wanders? You know, it happens from time to time. He said, well, you can go at it from two different ways. You can stop and look directly at the thought and see what is it really? What is its true essential nature? Or you can turn the lens inward and look at the thinker and do the same thing with the thinker. So I invite us to do that second one today. The way I did it, and I found it really helpful, was to actually rehearse dying, the dying process. Because in that process, a lot of the layers of the onion are gonna be peeled away. And a lot of the things we identify as me get peeled away. Sit with your back straight, but relaxed. I prefer, in this case, to close my eyes, although most of the meditations are with open eyes, so either way is fine. But just imagine now that it's time for you to leave this life. So what does that mean? What falls away? Well, the body, of course, falls away. So let's really feel that happening as much as we can. Now we feel, with that body falling away, we also lose many of the things that we learned in this life. the piano lessons, the books that we read, 
foreign languages that we learned. English falls away. Many of our neuroses that we've dealt with all this life fall away. The experiences that cause them. The people we attach these experiences to. This falls away. Our personality falls away. We leave behind our name. Being American or whatever country we're from. And yet, what is there? Perhaps we could call it my awareness. But where is the my? Just awareness. So resting in just awareness for a moment. And if you haven't opened your eyes yet, if you slowly open them, keeping that just awareness in your awareness, and also allowing manifested reality to coexist in your awareness. The ocean and the waves simultaneously, indistinguishably present. And this kind of emptiness I call the pregnant emptiness. And it is full of compassion. So we can feel some qualities of this emptiness. And so as we emerge from this contemplation. Please remember, if you can, some of those qualities in your encounter with your true self. If you've enjoyed the conversations of Lama Somo and Matthew, please visit namshock.org forward slash podcast for additional information and resources. That's N-A-M-C-H-A-K. The full record of their discussions, The Lotus and the Rose, is available on Amazon. The book also provides streaming access to full videos of their conversations, totaling almost nine hours. 
For more information on Lamasomo and the learning programs of Namshak, please visit namshak.org. For more information on Matthew Fox and his teachings in creation spirituality, visit matthewfox.org. This podcast was produced by Byron McCoy with Audio Wool Productions. Music from this episode has been used with the permission of Nawang Xiong, Sounds True, and Harmonia Mundi USA. Videos from which this audio was taken were directed by Katie Robin Garten with Sprout Films Incorporated. Full credits are available in the show notes of this episode.